0: Um, so today uh, I would just want to share with you guys uh, I'm, my name is Paul by the way, I'm one of the elders here at City Beautiful Church and uh, we had one of our an elder meeting this morning and uh, we were praying for us as a community and just talking about where God's taking us and I just walked away so encouraged because um, Annie and Greg Singleton uh, just hearing them pray and talk about, uh, just how much, like, just their, the love for, for us as a community and for you as people and as individuals was just, like, so evident that they walk around with that all the time. They're the ones who we mentioned, uh, Beloved is at their house on Friday night. So I just definitely encourage you to, that's a great place to get to know them as they open their home and invite, invite you into that. And then Landon, uh, just getting to hear his heart for saying, like, just looking around the room and the immense gifting that God has placed in this community and how we all have these different gifts and Landon's like we got to make sure that we we have a place where everybody can contribute where everybody can take the gifts that God's giving them and be able to like live those out and to hear hear that heart that Landon has I was just like so encouraged and I thought you would be too to know that I, I love the team I get to sit with and and be with as an elder team so thanks for the privilege of letting us serve uh you guys in that way in the community um We've been in this series um, talking about colony, and so if this is one of your first times here and you didn't notice already, we actually have a colony over here on the, on the side. We have a colony of bees, uh, and it's a great visual representation of seeing them work together and do the thing that God created them to do, but I think so often today in our society, our experience of the church can actually feel not like this colony that's working together, but more like a us versus them. And Ryan kind of introduced us to the topic uh, a few weeks ago as he was talking about the idea that it was never meant to be us versus them, but rather God created the church and made us to be for them, to be uh, together, inviting people into relationship with Christ. And Cole uh, even expanded on that further recently where he talked about there's so many opportunities that God places in us in, in our community for us to step out and link arms with others, even if they don't believe all the same things that we do. And it can be us with them. We can actually be working together. And that's not just okay. It's a good thing for us to step into relationship with them and work together for the flourishing of our city and for moving forward together in that way. Uh, and tonight I'm going to talk about a topic in this series that um, really God began to put in my heart last December and uh, to be honest, it's been a really difficult topic for me because it's this idea of um, forgiveness, and I'll tell you a little bit about the aspect that's hard for me later on. But uh, forgiveness as a concept is this idea that you, you let go of something, right? You either ex- you either offer forgiveness or you experience forgiveness, and you, maybe you've been offended and you let go of the offense, to the other person that offended you, and you even get to the point where you wish that person well, um, or if you experience forgiveness, it's where your heart can do that. Um, but we're gonna talk tonight about a concept of what it means to be moved toward being a forgiving community, a colony of people that's known for forgiveness, and what does that look like? And it's something that we have to cultivate both in our own lives, but also we have to do this together. We have to cultivate this idea together. And so I wanna start with this statement A forgiving community does not expect perfection, but it does ask for and invite bravery. A forgiving community does not expect perfection, but it does ask for and invite bravery. See, what bravery does is when we step out in bravery and we offer something that feels vulnerable or feels risky, what happens when we do that is we actually invite light in. We actually invite the light in to do what it was designed to do because light promotes growth. And when we're brave and we step out and we, we put that thing out there that we were scared to put out there, whether it was something we didn't want somebody to know about us or whether it was something, a sin we've committed that we're embarrassed about or some way we've offended someone, we actually do that and we invite the light in and then light can do what it was supposed to do. But darkness does the opposite. When we're not brave and we hide and we actually keep those things in the darkness... then what happens is darkness causes death. Like darkness actually does the opposite of life. It actually creates death inside of us. And it means that we aren't able to experience the light and what the light was meant to do. And so we want to talk tonight about what are things that that we want to experience inside of us, inside of us personally, and how do we step out in bravery. So part of what I'm going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about David and how he did that, how he experienced that in, in the Old Testament. King David, actually, he stepped out in bravery. He was able to do that, and so we're going to talk about that and what does that look like. But then we're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about us and what does it look like for us to have characteristics and cultivate an environment that invites bravery. So we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to step out in bravery and to be brave, one aspect of that, and then we're going to talk about what it looks like to cultivate together an environment for bravery. we got a tool that's going to help us do that, and that's the Jahari Window, I'm sure most of you have heard messages taught using the Jahari window before, um, or that's probably not true, actually. This was developed by Joseph Luft and Harry Ingram in 1955, and it's a really useful tool, and so each one of you should have your own personal Jahari window. Do you have it? If you don't have it, raise your hand. We'll make sure we get you one. Does everybody have their own personal Jahari window in front of them? If you don't, get your hand up real quick. We'll get one for you. Okay, we've got a couple right up here that need the Jahari window. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to orient you to the Jahari window real quick. It's pretty obvious, but we're going to talk about it for just a second. So up here in the upper corner, it says known to self and known to others. And so this is the public arena, right? This is what everybody knows about you or is actually fairly well known amongst your group of friends at least. And so if you spend any time with me, you would know pretty quickly that I love food. I love talking about food. I love finding great places to eat. I do lots of research before I go travel anywhere because I love food. I want to experience great food. That's pretty public, right? I mean, it's not hard for me to reveal that, and it's not hard for you to know that about me. So that's kind of the idea of the arena. It's out there for people to know. And so uh, if you move over to the right here, you'll see we move into a category of things that are known to others but are actually unknown to us, and those are called blind spots. Those are areas of our life that we don't see, we don't have good visibility into, but other people around us actually do see. And in the bottom left, these are areas that are known to us, so things I know about myself, but I don't reveal to other people. And that's the facade. That's this front that we put up that's not really us, because we know what's real about us. We know something that's true about us, but we're not willing to actually show that to someone else. And then the last one is this bottom right corner. It's something we don't know, other people don't know, Um, It's just this area that only God sees and knows. And so what we're going to talk about tonight specifically on this is, remember when I talked about the fact that part of it, we're going to talk about David and we're going to talk about basically how we can step out in bravery. That's the process of being willing to let more areas of our life be known to others. And so we actually move the window down and increase that part of the window pane by revealing, being willing to reveal, be brave and reveal more parts of ourselves to other people. And the part that we're going to talk about second tonight is the idea of moving this to the right. So what does it look like to actually let more, it be a community that invites people, creates an invitation to people to actually expose more of themselves and reveal more of themselves to us. And so part of it's a process that we do as individuals, and part of it's a process that as a community, we actually want to cultivate together. And so that's where we're going tonight uh, with with the window. So... The first part we're going to look at is, as I mentioned, this first part here where we're going down. In the Old Testament, I just finished reading a book um, called Misreading the Scripture Through Western Eyes. It's a great book. It really talks a lot about the cultural differences between the time when Scripture was written, when the Old Testament, for example, we're going to look at was written, and what our culture is like today. And one of those really big differences is the idea that in the Old Testament times, and actually this is true in other societies today as well, not just in Old Testament times, they had what's called an honor and shame culture. We actually, in Western society today, we live in what's predominantly a right and wrong culture. And so this honor and shame culture that we're going to look at, an incident with David's life, is really important for us to understand. uh, Because one thing that was true of them in that culture is that because they had an honor and shame culture, they knew what to do with shame. It was actually a part of their culture and part of what they did. With us, we actually spend a lot of time in Western society talking about what's right and what's wrong, and we don't spend a lot of time talking about what to do with shame because we just focus on what do I need to do different, what's right, what do I need to do differently to change that, and so what we're going to do tonight is talk a little bit about what do we actually do with shame because it actually is a part of our lives and we need to know what to deal with it. So we're going to look at this incident in David's life, um, and it's in 2 Samuel and I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to walk you through the story, and uh, talk about this. So David was uh, king of Israel during this time in Second Samuel chapter 11, and uh, it starts off by telling us that David was supposed to be at war. He was supposed to be. This was a time when kings go off to war, and David was not at war. Rather, he was up on the rooftop, and so he was. He his palace would have had been the highest rooftop in the city, and so he's high up on this rooftop, and it says that he looks down. And he sees a woman who's bathing and he finds her very attractive. And so he's in a place where he's not supposed to be. She's possibly in a place that she's not supposed to be. I'm not sure what she was doing bathing on the roof. And so they're both sitting there. And David says to a group of people, I want to find out who this is. And so we're going to pick this up in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. And David says, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And so he probably sent like a little group of people to go, a little. little group together. And it says that one came back and said, is this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So I just want to point out something to you here. This is an example that you can see of the honor and shame culture at work, because David would have sent servants. So he's king, right? And so he could, he sent servants to go find this out. So when they come back, they have information that he doesn't have, But it would be shameful for a servant to know something that the king didn't. And so do you see how they approach David? They ask him a question. Oh, David, isn't this Bathsheba? And he goes, yes, of course it is. Of course it's Bathsheba. I knew that all along. And so that's kind of some of that honor and shame dynamic at work. And then what goes on to happen is David then sends for uh, Uriah. I mean, David sends for Bathsheba. She comes to his palace. They sleep together, and she actually gets pregnant. And so David uh, finds out that her husband, Uriah, is off at war, fighting actually for David, the king. And so he sends for Uriah. And the reason he sends for Uriah is, again, sort of this honor-shame motivation. And that is that he wants everyone to be able to preserve honor in that situation. And so Uriah comes back, and David is trying to set up a scenario where Uriah will go and sleep with his wife so that... If, because she's pregnant, that that'll kind of cover up what happened with David and everything's going to be good. Nobody's ashamed. But let's look at Uriah's response in Second Samuel eleven eleven. Uriah says back to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. There that is, that dang honor and shame thing. He, it would be dishonorable for him while his comrades are out there fighting for him to go and actually enjoy sleeping and be with his wife. And so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So David kind of tries it again. He actually goes and gets Uriah drunk. Um, that doesn't help. Uriah still won't sleep with his wife. And so he does uh, this thing where he sends Uriah back to the battlefield. Uriah is out there fighting and he actually has the troops withdraw which leaves him exposed, and so Uriah is killed. So David's done all of this, and he's the king of Israel. Now, you can't put the lenses on this that we might, I know I'm tempted to, of thinking, oh, this is like this is like President Obama. Like, he's got all these checks and balances. In this. There's no checks and balances in this system. He's the king, that's it. He said it. There's like no one to really confront him and, and talk to him about this, because he can do whatever he wants. He's the king. I mean, that that's what he is. And so what happens is, Um, There's this period of mourning for Uriah. Then Bathsheba comes in, moves into his place, and they're moving on. But God is like, you know, what he did is wrong. It's not right. And so I'm going to actually send someone to confront David about this. And so Nathan um, comes. He's a prophet. Nathan comes and he actually uh, goes to David. He tells David a parable. He tells David a parable about this. These two, this guy has got two lambs and then you know, a guy takes another guy's lambs and all this stuff happens. And, and then at the end of the story, David's like, that's horrible. Like what has been done here, you sh- this guy should be killed because what he did was so horrible. And Nathan looks right at him and says, that's you. Like you're that guy. And David immediately responds. And see, what I was talking about before is really important here because in their, in, in their culture, this idea of shame and honor is something that David would have really understood because that's the, that's the way they operated, interacted with each other. And so David moves toward a place that we often, I think, don't move to. David moves to a place of, of genuine repentance and brokenness. Because the answer when you're confronted with your sin isn't shame. It's not, I'm going to hide, and I'm going to actually not forgive myself, and I'm going to just kind of pull that in and just feel horrible about myself. I'm not going to reveal it. Actually, the place that God asks us to move to Is a place of brokenness where we recognize our sin, what we've done wrong. We're willing to admit it and we're willing to be honest about it because we're going to make mistakes. And so I love David's response. So this is after Nathan has actually told him about it and David has has been willing as king, which is a big deal for David as king to admit he did something wrong is huge because he's the king. He doesn't have to do that. And David's response in Psalm 51 is great. He said in Psalm 51, verse three, this is how David responds. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, he's talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David, David got it. He got that he had sinned and he had messed up and he just put that out before God and he said, God, this is what happened. And uh, if, I'm going to give you two more psalms. We're not going to go there, but I'm going to give them to you. Psalm 32 is another great example of David knowing how to deal with sin. He actually exposes it and puts it out in the light. And like we talked about before, once you do that, you get rid of shame and you put it out in the light, then the light can do what it was meant to do. There's another place when David alludes to this too in Psalm 19. David's actually talking in Psalm 19 uh, verses 12 and 14. David's actually talking about two different kinds of sin. He says, God, forgive me of the sins that I'm basically not aware of. Like it hasn't been brought to me or I didn't know about it. Maybe I offended somebody, whatever. He says, forgive me of the sins I'm not aware of. And then he says, but keep me from willful sin that it may not rule over me. This is really huge because I think we've all experienced this before is that when we commit sin and we know it was sin and we're not willing to actually be honest about that with God and with other people around us, the people that are close to us that we can like be, put it out there with, what happens is that sin actually kind of gets a foothold in your life and it begins to actually have some, some power over you. And David recognized this. And in Psalm 32, he says, I mean, sorry, in Psalm 19, he says, God, keep me from that willful sin that it may not rule over me. And so this is huge, huge concept that shame actually has this power over us if we're not willing to be brave and to say, I'm not going to give shame any power. I'm actually, when I make a mistake or when I do something or when I sin, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be honest about it. i am be honest with God. And I'm going to be honest with the people around me that I can. And you'll be amazed at how much that actually releases. And so this is that concept we talked about. If you're looking at your Johari window of actually being willing to be honest about your sin or being honest about your flaws, being real about who you are and being able to push that line down and reveal more to others, and be make things about yourself known to others. The other concept we're going to talk about today is our part. So we've been talking about, about my part, like what do I need to do to push that line down, and, and to be like David when I'm honest about my sin, when I'm real about my sin. And then what do we do as a community that actually creates an environment, and invites that kind of bravery, that actually helps to move that line over and creates an invitation to others around us to say, we, we actually have an environment where it's safe to be brave, where, where bravery is encouraged, where that kind of honesty is encouraged. Um, there's, there's one picture I want to give us, um, and that is in Galatians 2, 11 through 13. And this is where um, what's happened here is that Paul is about to confront Peter because of something that Peter has done. And I want you to see how he does that. It says in Galatians 2, 11 through 13, it says later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. By the way, this is from the message. Eugene Peterson is the guy who translated this, this version of the Bible. It's called the message. And he does a great job with this passage. He says, he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Uh, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews, but when the conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in the Antioch church joined in the hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. So what happened here was Peter was acting a certain way around one group He actually started acting a different way when a new group came in because he was actually fearful of them. And so Paul saw this happening and he saw the division that it was creating and he stepped in and face to face said, Peter, don't do this thing. This thing you're doing is wrong. He actually confronted him face to face. And so what's really important about this for us is is this concept, this idea that if we don't have an environment that invites that kind of, of, of interaction with one another, then we're not creating an environment that invites bravery. You know, if if let's say if Paul had done this instead, let's say instead of going to Peter, what if Paul had said, "Hey Timothy, have you seen what Peter's doing over here?" You know, he would he might share it and say, "This is this is I'm just sharing this with you for the purpose of prayer." Like we, right, we've never done that, right? We've never talked about someone else and said we're sharing it because we want them to pray for that person. Um, and then Timothy maybe Timothy goes to John Mark and he says, "Hey John Mark." You're not going to believe what Paul told me about Peter, right? That's how this could have gone down. And we've actually probably all experienced, and if we're really honest, maybe been a part of actually that kind of interaction, which is not the environment. It's not creating the space that we really want to create that invites bravery. And, <clears throat> and so what I wanted to do, let's talk about five things, five, just five, like, characteristics that I think if we lived this out as a community, if we lived these things out together, that we would actually create an environment that among us creates a great environment that invites bravery. But even with those that maybe aren't a part of our community, maybe they're not people who are following Christ, maybe they're just curious and they're investigating Christ, or maybe they're people you interact with, if these things are true of us, it's going to invite them to be brave as well. It's going to invite them to to enter into this space as well. Um, So the first one, the first characteristic that I think uh, would need to be true of us to create an environment to invite bravery is sharing the need for a common savior. No matter where we are in, in our journey, in our spiritual journey, whether you're interacting with someone who hasn't yet uh, decided to enter a relationship with Christ or whether it's someone who's done this for a long time, you realize that we all share a need for a common Savior? Like you need, you need Jesus just as bad today as you did five years ago, even if you didn't know it five years ago. And so we have this common need for a Savior. And Jesus actually addresses this in a story in Luke chapter 18 when there's these two people who come into the temple and one's a religious leader and one's a tax collector, so this tax collector would have been someone who was really not. If you were like, you were not a respectable person in society if you were a tax collector back in in this day. And so Jesus tells the story, and here's how the religious leader prays. He says, "God, thank you that I'm not like all those other people. Thank you that I'm not like the bad people. I'm a good person, and thank you that I'm this, and I'm, I'm all these wonderful things. Um, and I I give, and I'm not a I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not all these things." And then the tax collector, he actually prays like this. He says, God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus, when he's telling this story, I'm kind of wondering what the people around him are going to like think he's talked, like where's this going? And what he actually says is pretty shocking to everyone there is that he says that it was the tax collector, not the religious leader that was justified. So this person who was a revered religious leader in his prayer, the way he approached God, he had lost the fact that he needed a savior, that he needed God. And this tax collector recognized his position. And he was like, I I need you, God. God, I know I can't do it on my own. I need you. And so I think for us, if we interact with one another and with those that we encounter in our daily life, and we have our own deep recognition of our need for a savior, That's a great starting point to create an environment that invites bravery in. I think the second thing is the idea of loving our neighbors. Jesus explained that the law could be summarized in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Sorry, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is in Matthew 22, by the way. So the idea of loving our neighbor in Matthew 22 and I think in our society, there's this, sometimes this idea that, that love is somehow attached to this idea of, well, I'll just, I'll let you be you, and I'll be me, and I'll kind of do my thing, and you kind of do your thing. But the reality is that's actually not the kind of love that Jesus displayed. When he talks about loving our neighbor, he actually got his hands dirty. I mean, love gets its hands dirty. Jesus would actually meet specific needs of people, whether if they were hungry, he fed them, if they were sick, he healed them. I mean, he, he moved into, into people's lives in the specific place that they had a need. It wasn't this distant, like, I'll just kind of love you. You stay over there and do your thing because we have differences. And so I'm going to let you be over there and be different. No, Jesus actually walked with, with sinners, <laughs> as you might say. He walked with those people. He, he was cl- lived closely with them. And ultimately, he actually suffered. He was beaten, and he died on a cross for us. He died on a cross for, for, for every person. And like, that is the kind of love that we're talking about. When you talk about loving your neighbor, it's messy and it actually can be brutal at times, but this is the kind of love that we have to demonstrate as a community. If you want to create an environment that's like, I love you no matter where you're coming in, no matter what your need is at the time, no matter how you're coming toward me, I can extend love back to you, loving our neighbor. The third thing is making Christ the central issue. So many times I think we actually make behavior the central issue, not Christ. The church as a whole can be known for attacking behaviors instead of inviting people to meet Jesus. You know, creating an environment that invites bravery, whether it's with people here in the community or whether it's people that you're encountering, As you go to work and as you go throughout your life, what they need is not to have you convince them that their behavior needs to change. What they need from us is they need to meet Jesus. They need to meet the same Jesus that you've met. They need to get to know him. They need to experience him. And so if we're really committed to saying the important thing here is that I introduce them to Jesus, they get to know me. We build a relationship because in that, they actually get to interact with Jesus. I bring that to the table. And so if I'm standing at a distance attacking their behavior, I don't agree with you on that issue. You're you're wrong for the way you feel. And that's what I'm known for is attacking all these behaviors and issues. Then we can't get close enough to actually introduce them to Jesus. And so we want to make Christ the central issue. The fourth one um, is embodying grace and truth. Jesus did this so well. John 17 talks about it. He talks about Jesus embodying grace and truth. And uh, he demonstrated this for us in John 18 when a woman was caught in adultery. And this woman who was caught in adultery was actually brought before Jesus. So she was literally caught in the act of a sin. And so people brought her to Jesus and they're were like, we're going we're gonna to stone this woman because of what she's done. And so Jesus' response was to say, whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. And guess what happened? all the stones start getting put down because none of us can claim that we've never made a mistake, that we've never sinned. And so then Jesus looks at her and he says, look, all the people who were condemned to you are gone. Now of all the people in the world who could condemn her, who could that have been? God himself, Jesus, right? But what does he say to her? He says, neither do I condemn you. He extended he ex- grace. And he said, I don't condemn you either. But then the next thing he said is a great example of Jesus embodying grace and truth because he turns to her and he says, now go and sin no more. So he didn't overlook the fact that she had made a mistake. That wasn't lost on him, that she had had committed an act of sin. But he actually did say, look, you're not condemned. As a matter of fact, you can be forgiven, but now you need to go on your way and sin no more. And so that's a great example for us, a picture of how we can be gracious in our response, gracious in how we interact with people, and be known as gracious people, but we don't have to back down from speaking truth into their lives. And the final one um, is this idea of um, being zealous for good deeds. God calls his people to be zealous for what is good. You know, if, if we alluded to this earlier, we talked about um, the, the idea of, of loving our neighbor, but this idea of doing good deeds if we don't do those things, if we don't step into doing good in the community, what happens is we become known as a people who are just talking. We're actually talking, but nobody experiences us doing the kinds of things that, that the church should be embodying. And so whether that's, uh, you know, it may be sometimes standing up against uh, someone who's, a, who's an oppressor. If, if there's a people group that's being oppressed in our community and we need to stand up for their rights and stand up for those people, we should do that. Sometimes it might mean actually uh, partnering with other people in the community that maybe we don't see eye to eye with, but we actually are both working for the flourishing of our city. Because if we wait for this perfectly aligned group of people to go do good together, then we're never going to do good, right? Because you may not agree with me on everything. I may not agree with you. But if you want to create an environment that actually invites within our community, invites bravery, invites people to to be real about who they are, invites people that are not maybe a part of our community, but you're interacting with on a daily basis. But we have no good things to show as a result of our time together as a church. And that's not creating the kind of environment that invites bravery. It actually creates an environment of like, well, these people say a lot of things, but they don't actually do anything. I don't know if I want to be a part of that. And so we want to be a, a people that invites bravery by people looking at us and saying they experience good deeds as a result of of us together. So the five things we just talked about, and these are all things, again, that, that we do to help create an environment, right, where we're inviting people in to bravery. We're inviting people in the community to step into bravery, or we're inviting people maybe who you're interacting with that aren't a part of our community to also look in and step in because it's an attractive environment. We talked about these five things. We talked about um, sharing a common need for a savior. We talked about loving our neighbor, being people known for loving our neighbor, making Christ the central issue, embodying grace and truth, and being zealous for good deeds. I want to go back to where we began because we began with this statement. A forgiving community does not expect perfection, but it does ask for and invite bravery. So if you pull out if you if you pull out your jahari window I want to I want to show you that that um, again is that if if you, you as a person aren't aren't being real you're you're experiencing shame somewhere in your life you're not actually stepping into a relationship with people and sharing all of who you are then you're stuck that line's not moving for you to invite additional people into your life and if you're, part of, if, if you're here, you're part of the community, and you're not embodying some of these characteristics, then you're not being part of, that, of the group of people that's trying to create an environment to invite that, to make that happen. And so what I want to do is just give us like two or three minutes to take your own personal jihari window, and what I want you to do is write down maybe areas of your life that you, you feel like, you know what, I haven't been as honest in this area of my life that I could be. I haven't been willing to show my true self to some of those closest to me in this area of my life. And maybe even write down names of people that even this week you could take action on and you could sit down with them and say, hey, I want to invite you to know another part of me. I want to invite you to get to know another piece of me that I haven't been able to, to, to do. So that would be, just invite you to like, to be very specific and write those down. And then and then maybe, maybe on the, part of like these five things we talked about maybe there's one that you're like you know what this is an area that I'm going to invite the Lord into I want to invite him into my life in this area to to help me grow in that and you could just write that down and it'll kind of give you a, a picture on your paper of some of the work that maybe God wants to do in your life and expanding expanding you in that way so I'll give you a couple of minutes to write that down I shared with you at the beginning that um, this had been a like, really, uh, I was excited to share some of this because of what God's been doing in my own life, but there was also some parts of it that were really hard, and I remember um, last week, I was uh, my wife and I got to go on a, on a retreat with some other couples, and I was sitting on this back porch just sharing uh, with a friend of mine named Ken, and he Ken had just done a really great job of creating that kind of environment we've talked about for me and I, I told him I was like you know Ken I, honestly I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this but I've been dealing with a lot of anger lately like it's just kind of come up in ways that wasn't expected and that feels really ugly and to be honest feels shameful for me to even be honest about and tell you that um, Ken's somebody I really respect and I really care about and like to be honest and say I've got all this anger and I don't really know what to do with it sometimes and just feels really ugly, and I feel kind of out of control, and Ken was just so gracious in his response, and I remember thinking as I was getting ready for this time to share with you guys that like how incredibly uh, blessed I felt to have Ken in my life, and then I also realized that maybe some of you, you don't have that same thing in your life. Maybe you don't have somebody you feel like, hey, I I have this person that naturally came to my mind, or um, I feel like I've already, I know exactly where to go with this, And so we asked a few people in our community to to be willing to pray. We gave them a notice ahead of time um, and and asked these specific people, say, you know, would you be willing to pray for for people here? And maybe you need prayer for something else. That's awesome too. And so I'm going to have some of our team in the back to pray for you and be willing just to kind of uh, pray for you if this is something that you're wrestling with, you're not sure where to go with it. Um, or maybe you just are like, you know what, I know where I'm going with it, and I just want some extra prayer to get behind me on this. And so as um, we start uh, in worship, I just invite you, if you feel led, to go back, and there'll be some, some great people that'll pray with you. So thanks.